following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this morning. Glad that you're able to participate with us. I want to invite you to come and take your seats. Or if you're in Sunday school, I better make it out that way to your class. This morning, uh, James Widgeon normally teaches, but he is out of town, so I am taking his place, and uh, that means that I'm busy here doing this than something else, other than something else, so um, welcome. Glad that you're here. I want to welcome uh, a new friend, Crystal. Crystal Wen is in the back there with the dowels, so they've been helping her uh, get settled a little bit, and uh, so say hi to Crystal when you get a chance uh, from Taiwan. Amen. All right. Um, these notes are uh, available for you on the church website if you would like to have them. They're about nine or ten pages so far. I have more yet to write on there, but I'm sharing with you as I go. Um, it is, yeah, it's nine and change, and uh, I've got some reformatting on there, so it looks a little nicer, but that's on fbcaa.org docs. That's D-O-C-S, or documents for long. You can find those there under today's uh, date, as well as the bulletin for today and the notes for the Sunday uh, morning worship service coming up at 1045. Uh, we started a few weeks ago uh, when I had opportunity in this hour to study the doctrine or theology of the cross. I thought it would be useful for us to spend some time here and just uh, give me an opportunity to write out a set of notes on this topic. And so we started by looking generally at the, the cross uh, under the heading of the doctrine of the atonement, you could call it. Uh, we looked at problems solved by the cross of Christ, problems solved by the cross. And we only got to one of those and the solution of that. And the first one of those was the problem that is the wrath of God against sin. And we saw that in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so it's clear to us that God is not happy about human sin and our departure from holiness. Rebellion against God displeases him and excites in him, we say, theologically, a response out of his holiness of wrath. That wrath is not an emotion. It is a disposition against God that arises because of an offense to his holiness. It's directed not only at the sin, but at the sinner who commits the sin. And we have to understand that despite the common parlance today that God loves the sinner and hates the sin, there's a more intricate connection between the sinner and the sin that is not so easy to just do this with and to get rid of. Welcome, Ben. Good to see you this morning. Um, God is angry with the wicked, the Bible says, not with the wicked's sin. That's true too, but uh, we have to appeal to people to realize the wrath of God abides upon them. Well, look at John chapter 3 and verse 36. I think I mentioned this one last time, but if you have trouble with the idea of what I just said about more intricately connecting the sin with the sinner, it says in John 3:36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, 
And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on his sin? No, it says upon him, unfortunately. I say unfortunately, not that I mean it's unfortunate, but it's, it's for, for that doctrine that, that says, you know, God loves everybody and there's, there's no, you know, there's like very little connection between them, that person, and their sin. No, it's, the reality is God's wrath is upon people. People are the ones who do the sin. You can't just say, you can't just say God blames sin like some abstraction, some conceptual theoretical entity. Sin is done by sinners, and the sinners are the ones who receive the wrath of God. That should be clear to us as Christians because we know that the wrath of God is finally poured out upon unbelievers when they are cast into eternal condemnation. And so it's certainly the case there that the sin is not the only issue, but the sinner who is receiving the ethical payment due for their sin. So we looked at the wrath of God and then uh, a few pages later, we uh, jumped ahead and we examined the idea of propitiation. And I just kind of took it out of order just so that, you know, in the time that we had in that one session that we could look at one problem and one solution. So the solution to the wrath of God is the doctrine on page um, eight of the notes, if you have those on your screen there, uh, is propitiation or satisfaction. And the satisfaction of uh, God's wrath is that word propitiation. And I wanted to just reiterate what I said last time, that the propitiation of God's wrath is also not a theoretical thing or um, uh, an abstraction, because 1 John 2, 2 says this, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, Okay. What that means is that the satisfaction of God's wrath is not an, a, 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 an abstract concept, as I've said earlier. It is him, Jesus himself, who is the satisfaction for our sins. That's an important idea to grasp onto, that the man who died upon the cross, the God-man, is himself the propitiation for our sins. You cannot have God's wrath satisfied any other means or mechanism or person or thing or, or, or anything else that you can imagine. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ and his death and in his cross work. Um, so it's more than a mere sacrifice or a death or a substitution. It is that Jesus is the death, the substitution, the propitiation. Without him, there is no propitiation or appeasement. Um, we, you may be recalling a mention in the book of Genesis about appeasement. When uh, Jacob went to meet Esau after those 20 years, remember that? And he sent like, wave after wave of these gifts to his brother to try, to try to assuage his anger, which he thought was still there. Well, that was what that was. That was a propitiation, a propitiatory offering, trying to appease the anger of his brother, which as Jacob later found out, had, had uh, waned over the course of the last 20 years, and his brother was ready to move on from what had happened before. God had prospered him, and he figured out that uh, it wasn't, things weren't as bad as what he had thought. Personally, of course, they were not good because he had walked away from, from God and from the, uh, from the Abrahamic covenant. But in any case, that was an appeasement. Um, 
So that was the wrath of God. Let me go back now and just give you a, a, an outline under the heading of the problems that the cross solves, of all of the problems. We start with the wrath of God. We secondly have enmity with God, enmity with God because of our rebellion. That's on the second page of the notes. Then we have bondage to sin, wrath, enmity, bondage. Then we have guilt. Guilt is another problem that we have as Christians, and it's not that we feel guilty all the time. It's that we are objectively guilty as criminals in God's sight. And then finally, I put another one at the end of the list, which is death. So the fruit of these things is death. So you have wrath, the wrath of God. You have enmity with God. You have bondage to sin. You have guilt because of sin. And then you have death as the final result. So if you were to if somebody were to ask you, why is the cross, why is Christianity necessary? Why, why, what's the importance of it? Why did Jesus die on the cross? What's so significant about this? Here you could start right here, and you could say to them, look, the wrath of God abides on you. You're an enemy of God. As, as good of a person as you might think you are, I'm going to mention this this morning in this sermon in the 1045 service. As good of a person as you think you are, you're not that good. You're in bondage to sin. Oh no, we're not in bondage to anyone. Remember that phrase from the scriptures? Yeah, the Pharisees said that. We're not slaves to anyone. As they sat occupied and enslaved to the Romans, they said, we're not in bondage to anybody. And really, Jesus was not talking about, you know, oppression and occupation, but that was an obvious thing that they could have sat there and said, hmm, we just said we're not in bondage to anyone. (laughs) We're not governing ourselves. But they could have also realized that they were enslaved to sin, as Jesus was trying to tell them in John chapter 8. Okay, so you have that bondage, and then as a result of sin, you have guilt. So you can't just do a sin, any sin, or be a sinner and not have any guiltiness attached to that. You see, people today want to, they kind of want to treat God like they treat, uh, um, how can I say, I'll just say it, uh, attorneys general and judges in far left-wing areas of our country where they can go and, you know, riot and burn things and then go before the judge and, or the attorney general just lets them off the hook. Now, they are guilty for what they've done. But they think that that, that, that sin is not a, attached to guilt and they can just be let off scot-free. And people think that with God. God's just going to, you know, he'll just overlook. He won't, he won't prosecute the crime. But, you know, at some point we have to realize that a judge who doesn't prosecute a crime or an attorney general who doesn't prosecute a crime and a judge who doesn't find guilty and sentence for the crime, if I'm more complete in my explanation. If you have a judge that doesn't do that, what kind of a judge is that? An unrighteous judge. An unrighteous judge. Because remember, for every crime, there is a victim. 
Oh, there are victimless crimes. Oh, yeah, against you and you only have I sinned. There's one victim, if you will, victim. <laughs> but there are others too. So somebody commits murder like that fellow who was killed in the riots, wherever that was. His last name was Dorn, I think, D-O-R-N. Was he a police guy or a former police officer? In St. Louis. Somebody is relative to that man who wants justice for his death. And I don't know anything if, that's, if they followed up on that or not, but for a long time there was nothing, nothing. And the system is broken. The system is unrighteous because of that, because it's not assigning guilt. It's not t- carrying out the proper punishment. And so, you know, you can say, well... Uh, I, I, I smoke weed, you know, it's a victimless crime and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, every single human being has to admit there is a crime which has to be punished for there to be a righteousness in the system. It's some bad thing, many bad things in our view, but at least some they would have to admit. Guilt has to be attached to criminal acts. So those are the problems that the cross solves, we can look at them in more detail. Enmity, first of all, we've seen wrath already. Enmity, Romans 5.10, in which the scripture says, following, for if when we were enemies, there's an assumption there, we were enemies, in fact, of God. You know, I wouldn't, I would like nothing more than to be able to sit down with some people who don't have a mind to be, um, combative, but have a mind to, to talk back and forth. Some people who don't know the Lord, I would love nothing more than to sit down and talk with them and understand their mindset and talk with them and challenge them about their views. Like When I say something like this, you are an enemy of God. Do people believe that? Mostly not. I mean, if you talk to somebody who is, you know, in the occult or a devil worshiper or something like that, well, yeah, I'm an enemy of God. I'm an avowed, I'm a sworn enemy of God. But, you know, a lot of people in our culture, they'll say, oh, no, I mean, not really, you know. Uh, But then you say, well, okay, are you an atheist? Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know how you're not an enemy of God. Well, God doesn't exist, so he can't be an enemy of somebody who doesn't exist, they might say. Um. I just wonder how that would go. I'd like to do a lot of that, more of that. And if you have any opportunities, let me know. I'll sit in on conversations you have with your friends, your unbelieving friends, so to speak. But the assumption in the Bible is all are enemies of God unless they come to faith in Christ. We were reconciled at that state to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So you have to, I think there's a lot more deep thought we could do to help our unbelieving friends to see just what it means to be an enemy of God, to be somebody opposed to his purposes. Uh, And I think a lot of people don't realize that they are. You know, when somebody says, for example, uh, you know, God's word says salvation is only through Christ and you must call upon his name to be saved. And somebody says, but I think that something else. 
Well, right there is the thought that is only fit for somebody on the other side of God's team, not on God's team, you know, somebody who is an enemy of God. That, that mindset, even, you know, doubting God's word is a subtle form of that, isn't it? Has God said? That comes right from the mouth of the enemy, capital E, of God. And so it comes in subtle forms, but it's nonetheless enmity. You know, somebody who, uh, you know, you know is lying, and you're supposed to, they feel, you're supposed, just believe what I say. No, I believe what you do, not what you say. But, you know, somebody, you know, lying, to, no, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe some, you know, false doctrine. But when they, in fact, do, they're enemies of God. They're trying to make themselves look like they're not, but they are. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. That's the idea of enmity. Enmity, there's a separation between God and uh, sinners in the creation. Isaiah 63, 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy. Now, there is an interesting thing, because some people will say in their, their theology is, God's not the enemy of anybody. Well, what does this text say? He turned himself, this is Isaiah 63.10, he turned himself against them as an enemy. He himself is that, and he fought against them. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. In the end, you know, you don't have to believe that you're an enemy, but uh, how can I say it? I don't want to say it exactly that way. You know, you're privileged to ignore that truth. Just realize it's still true. It's still true because the Bible tells us that it's true and the Bible's God's word and we can't argue with it. We simply can't argue with it. Ephesians 2, shall I pile on some more verses that tell us this? Ephesians 2.12, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That's the idea of enemy, alienated, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Clear? I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's true. Every single human being has existed for some or all thus far of his or her life in the state of enmity. I'll say that again. Every single human being has existed for at least part of their life, if not their whole life, in this state of enmity with God, realized or unrealized. Before coming to Christ, you know, you might have thought of yourself as, uh, might not have thought of yourself as being an enemy of God, but in fact, with your sin, you were. And if you're still without Jesus, you still are in that enemy status with God because God's word says that is the case. I always go back to this, you know, somebody says, uh, like the mayor this, this uh, last week, I think it was this last week, said uh, uh, something about gay conversion therapy. It's an abomination. 
he said. That's Mayor Taylor in Ann Arbor. It's an abomination. They passed a uh, law against it, an ordinance, civil infraction, 500 bucks for each time that you are guilty of gay conversion therapy. I think especially for young people uh, was the focus of that. But uh, I say to myself, and who are you, Mr. Mayor, to make a declaration that is the inverse of God's word? It's not conversion that is an abomination. It's the activity of sexual immorality that is an abomination. Okay? Yes, sir. Banned. Gay conversion therapy. No, no, no. It's conversion therapy is to convert from gay to straight. That's how they see it. But that's a subset of what Christian gospel would do to somebody in effect if they were to follow it. Yeah. So we can talk more about that another time. But I figured I, I knew at some point it would be a question and somebody would raise it and I would have to deal with it and I still will have to deal with it. Um, but, uh, you know, that ordinance is going to go basically without recognition and, uh, and notice in this church. I mean, if some young people, if some young person comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm struggling with, what am I going to do? Say, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you about that, even though I have the First Amendment, because the Ann Arbor mayor said it's an abomination to talk about that. Uh, that's not going to happen, Okay. Yeah, that's an unlawful order that has been made. Not that we're rebellious people. We're going to talk about that later this morning. But we have to do what is right before God. But in any case, uh, we have this idea that we're you know, not enemies of God, but in fact we are. Uh, it's not only a man who sets himself as an enemy of God, but God sets himself as an enemy of anyone who is a sinner. God is displeased not only with the sin, but also with the sinner who does the sin because of that inextricable link that we've mentioned. Okay, so we've had wrath, we've had enmity. Now, thirdly, I want to talk about bondage, and we've often talked about this in the church. I mentioned John 8, 34. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6.17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Again, people are unaware of this. That's because they exist in darkness, and spiritual darkness is what we mean. That is, their eyes are not open to the reality. Uh, that reality, some, some have... Some have talked about what I think is a, of as a similar idea in the culture. In the culture, you have this idea from the matrix of the red pill. You've heard of that before probably, right? And you, you, uh, when you come to a recognition of what's really going on, that's a red pill moment. When you really realize, it's just it's a cultural phrase that's come up because of the activity or the uh, portrayal of this particular movie, that that's been then transported into culture. And so when you realize that, you know, 
your favorite political party is actually doing the opposite of what they say they're doing. That's a red pill moment, you know, when you leave that political party. <clears throat> uh, your eyes are opened and you realize, whoa, there's some stuff going on here that I never realized before. They've been lying to me. They've been, they've been deceiving. Uh, you know, they really aren't who they portrayed themselves to be. And I think of that kind of eye-opening experience with the gospel. When you realize, I have been enslaved to my sins, I now realize, for all these years. I have been an enemy of God and I haven't even realized it. And you have that deep conviction that you have to leave that life and you have to walk with Christ. That is that time when you realize, I have been, for example, in bondage to sin. The Egyptian bondage of the people of Israel is a picture of this state, though an imperfect one. And I say imperfect because many people get confused about this. They say, well, all of Israel was brought out of bondage. What kind of bondage? Physical bondage, right? Doesn't say they were brought out of spiritual bondage. In fact, Many who were brought out of physical bondage remained in spiritual bondage. They carried their idols out with them from Egypt, and they continued their idolatry. I mean, they were making a golden calf within days after their exit from Egypt, and they were in bondage to sin. So the example or the illustration of the Egyptian freedom is not a perfect one. Many people become confused about it. Uh, in fact, the scripture says many of their corpses fell in the wilderness. Why? Hebrews 3, 17 to 19 says, So we see that because of unbelief, they could not enter into the promised land. So they had an unbelief problem. They were not believers in God. But this spiritual bondage is actually worse than bondage of physical slavery. In physical slavery, the slave is relatively innocent and the master is guilty. The slave wishes to be free in his heart, in the physical slavery condition, but in spiritual slavery to sin, not only is the master guilty, the slave is guilty. In fact, the slave doesn't want to leave his life of sin and be freed from it before Christ comes into his heart and life. He's a guilty accomplice in the sin that enslaves him, and he is happily enslaved in that sin. You see how it's a different kind of slavery? It's a more pernicious kind. Almost unbelievably, it's a slavery that the slave wants to continue in. Can you imagine? Yeah, it doesn't comport well with our idea of what slavery is. He wants to be free from slavery. Well, yes, if they understand that they are, in fact, enslaved and that you know, living for these pleasures and living in these lusts and living in these addictions and living in these in this malice and envy and all of that, if they realize that that's an awful thing, then yes, they would want to be freed, but many do not. That's just the natural state of which they are accustomed to living in their whole life. So we have wrath, we have enmity, we have bondage. Fourthly, the fourth problem is guilt. And as these problems pile on, it makes your hopelessness increase, doesn't it? If you realize... I have all these problems before God. Guilt, the guilt of sin. Guilt is not an emotion in the way I'm using it here, although it can emit, kind of result in emotions. 
It's an objective fact about the state of a person in the courtroom of God. You can be guilty and not feel guilty. You can feel guilty and not be guilty. You know that too? I counsel a lot of people that have that. Look, if your sins are under the blood of Christ, are you guilty anymore for those sins? But why do you continue to feel guilty about them? And I'm, I'm not just saying like the passing feeling of, you know, boy, I was pretty rotten and that's part of my testimony. And I mean, people swallowed up with guilt and they are ineffective in their Christian life and they're uh, paralyzed by that guilt. But the other condition is arguably, I'd say much worse, where you're guilty but you don't feel that you are. It's a tragedy of most of the world today. People pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I'm pretty good, when in fact they have terribly offended the holiness of God. If they only knew the darkness of their spiritual state, if they only could be shown the heart of darkness, to adapt a title from a well-known novel in their own heart. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The, the blessed thing is when somebody realizes they're guilty and then they can kind of take steps to figure out, okay, what do I do about that? Find Christ. James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of that law. The troubling thing is, continues to pop up because I preached on that doctrine of the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I get all kinds of feedback on YouTube on this, people commenting, campaigning for their Hebrew Roots ideas and, and saying things about the law of Moses, and, oh, yeah, we don't need the, we don't need the law you know, to be saved, but you know, how, how are you going to know what, what sin is if you don't know what the law of Moses is? And uh, you know, Basically, how are you going to be sanctified without the law of Moses? And I continually ask and never get the answer, so did you circumcise your sons on the eighth day? Have you offered sacrifices in the temple? Have you kept the three feasts at which every male must appear before the Lord in Jerusalem? Have you done any of that? Have you kept kosher? And I get no answer. Because if they broke one of those, they've broken the whole thing. And they can preach the law all they want. But if they're not keeping it, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's wrong. Sin brings guilt, and guilt means you're liable to deserve punishment. So think of the courtroom. You've done something. You've been caught. You're brought before the judge. The case is laid out. The judge says evidence shows that you're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, or the jury. And now the next step is what? Sentencing, right? Sentencing. So that's the punishment side of it. You're liable to punishment. You've been Presumed innocent until you're proven guilty. But once you're proven guilty, <clears throat> then you deserve the punishment that comes, whatever that is, for that, for that crime. If you're liable for damages, that means you're personally responsible to pay for those damages as when you, you know, break your neighbor's window in their house. You should pay for that. You should pay for it. If you're not guilty, then you're not liable for the damages. If you are guilty, you are liable for the damages. Now, this brings up an interesting question, and I'll deal with it in kind of three, three prongs. Let's suppose that your minor son is a little rambunctious in his baseball, and he uh, breaks the neighbor's window. What do you do then? 
So, oh, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. Oh, yes, but the son under your authority did it. So, you know, you, the parent, need to pay for the damages. This matter of restitution is righteous, despite the problem being initiated and being the guilt directly of the son. In other words, the father is not guilty of the sin, right? But he does have a liability for the damages as the head of the household. And if you say, well, it's the insurance that's supposed to cover that. Yeah, but who pays for the insurance? Dad, <laughs> you know, parents. On this whole idea, we need to clarify, though, what the idea is Bible, the Bible's teaching is on guilt and the idea of restitution along three lines. First of all, guilt is not transferable from one generation to the next. Sin does cross generational lines in this way, that sin which is embraced by the second generation causes guilt in that generation. This is where people get uh, turned around in that section in the Ten Commandments where it says God is jealous and he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He doesn't say first generation hates me, I'm going to punish the second and third and the fourth generation. What happens is that the first generation hates God and they pass that down to their children to hate God who pass it down to their children who pass it down to their children and God visits that iniquity as it flows through the, the human family and it visits it for their own guilt each generation. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that God punishes the fourth generation for their great-grandparents' guilt. God forbid that idea. That is an unbiblical concept. In fact, Brother Carnes pointed out a terrible translation in NIV in that very passage that talks of, it makes it look like God just punishes people for sins of prior generations. Look it up, see what you think. So guilt is not transferable from one generation of, of adults to the next. We're setting aside, you know, the kid who breaks the neighbor's window with his baseball playing. Uh, guilt is upon the one who sins, not upon the father or not upon his son. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay, so we have to maintain that understanding. Secondly, restitution is exampled in the Bible. Restitution like punishment or retribution is given to those directly affected by the sin, not by not to distant generations. So the guilt is given, is, is, is had by the people who've done the sin, and the restitution is due to those who have been directly impacted by the sin uh, as well. Third, the guilt of imputed sin is a different sort of matter altogether. So you, you might say, well, okay, so God doesn't punish the second and third and fourth generations for the sin of the first. So why is the sin of Adam imputed to us as humans? Now, some people say, no, Adam's sin is not directly imputed to us because that's not fair. Okay, you with me? It's not fair that his sin is imputed to us because of the, and they have maybe in mind this principle of Ezekiel 18.20. And that's good that they have that, but it's mistaken because... In Romans chapter 5, it explicitly says that death spread to all men because all sinned, and it, it indicates there in the passage clearly to me that Adam is the representative head of the race. He sinned and plunged the whole race into sin with him, 
and that guilt is transferred to everybody immediately. And because of that, Paul argues, that guilt transference by imputation from Adam to the race is parallel to the righteousness transference of Christ to the believer. So if you insist that the transference of guilt from Adam to you is unfair, then to be consistent, I would ask you to recognize that the transference of Christ's righteousness to you is also unfair. So if you don't want the sin of Adam, don't take the righteousness of Christ. That's the ironclad parallel that's given in Romans chapter 5. So because of what one man did, the entire race was condemned. Each member of the human race is also guilty because of personal sin and possesses a sin nature. Every human is guilty as a member of Adam's sinful race. Adam was our representative, and he chose on our behalf, in effect, what the human race's response would be toward God's directive. This is a unique position that Adam had, and I think God gave him to understand, you are responsible. Your decision is going to affect a whole bunch of people. No pressure, Adam. Yeah, a lot of pressure. The sin then that he did is imputed to us, and then if we come to faith, is transferred to Christ, and his righteousness is transferred to us. So to take my little explanation of Romans 5 a little farther, if you think it's unfair for Christ or for Adam's sin to be imputed to you, then do please recognize that it should be unfair for your sin to be imputed to Christ, not only his righteousness to be imputed to you. Why should Christ take your sin if, if it's unfair? Well, in a sense, it is unfair. But this is the wonder of the cross, that God in the cross solves the problem of wrath and enmity and bondage and guilt. Now, I have not presented all of this. I think, am I done here? Almost done. Uh, I haven't presented all of this in some kind of kid-friendly way, but I'm just thinking of some of you who are parents. You need to teach your kids we do as a church, but you do as a family to teach your kids these problems. That you have problems as a sinner. Wrath, enmity, bondage, guilt, death. Okay? Don't just sugarcoat it and say, you know, God loves everybody and just believe in him in your heart, accept him in your heart, and all will be fine. No, help them to understand why they need the gospel of Christ. It's essential that we don't sugarcoat it so that they get this idea that they're kind of okay and they're not really guilty and everything will be fine and all that. No, these are severe problems. And so you can take these notes, read them, and just you know, have them in mind. Use illustrations that come up in your home about guilt and about punishment that's necessary for you know, some sinful thing that was done by one of your youngsters. Uh, and, and use that to help them to understand their need for the gospel. Uh, then we, we mentioned already death. Um, Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So this, what we've talked about, is outlined the problems that humanity faces in its broken relationship with God. In our upcoming sections, we'll explain how the work of Christ solves each and every one of those problems. 
through atonement, reconciliation, forgiveness, expiation, remission, propitiation, substitution, justification, and all those wonderful concepts that are given to us in the Bible. These will answer, what exactly did Jesus accomplish on those hours before and on the cross? And after he died and rose again from the dead, what exactly did he accomplish in terms of wrath, enmity, bondage, and guilt, in terms of connecting us to God with those problems, epidemic, pandemic among us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to spend a few moments in this portion of doctrine, in this segment of the theology, in these various verses that we've read. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize with great joy and great gratitude what you have accomplished for your people upon the cross in overcoming all of these ills that we face as sinful people and may more and more come to understand this and have their eyes open to it. In Jesus' name, amen.